Hello and welcome to Snack Size History, where we take the bland and we try to make it brilliant. In this week's episode, the main focal point is going to be something that's weighed heavily on most people's minds for the past 14 months or so. Has 2020 been the worst year ever? For young people like myself, I think a lot of people would say yes, and I think we're right to a degree. I think it's at least, you know, the most difficult year and the worst year we have experienced as a group of people, and indeed our modern society. I think in living memory, there's not been a year that's been quite as bad as 2020. But as a student of the past or anyone who likes the history can tell you, there's been a few bad years in the past as well. And the focus of this podcast isn't going to be to diminish what people have gone through in 2020. Like I said, it's been one of the hardest years people have faced for a long time. But I want to look at things that, you know, years and events that have happened where people have faced hard times too and they've bounced back and I'm sure that we will too. Now, the first year I'm going to talk about would be the year 536 AD, so well over 1500 years ago. It's not my personal suggestion, I've got to give credits to the man who suggested it and that man is a scholar named Michael McCormick, so on the off chance you're listening, thank you very much. Now, 536 was the year that saw something called the Plague of Justinian spread across the world. Now, even still to this day, we're not entirely certain what the plague was. It's generally thought to be something called Yersinia pestis, and remember that name. Remember what Yersinia pestis is. I'm about to explain, obviously. We're not 100% certain what it was, but Yersinia pestis is what's known more colloquially as the Black Death or the Bubonic Plague. Now, this is where it's a horrible, horrible thing. People generally, their skin has these large black sacks called buboes and they spread up and people can die within hours. It's horrible, horrific. Now, this plague, the first recorded outbreak of it is in a place called Pelusium in Egypt. And from there, it spread across the Mediterranean and into the wider world. So there's parts of Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan and China where there's been bodies that have found Yersinia pestis in the DNA. So it spread across the world. And it infected the Byzantine emperor at the time, a man called Justinian, and obviously that's where the name of the plague comes from. But it affected people across all walks of society, even the Byzantine emperor, who was one of the most powerful men in Europe at the time. He got it, and he was he was out of action for months. Now, luckily, we've got a first-hand witness, a fellow called Procopius, who was a, a Byzantine kind of clerk, if you like, and an official. So he had reasonably good access to data, and he was a pretty good writer. And he says that the death toll was 20,000 a day in Constantinople at the height of the plague. Now, before the plague, the population of Constantinople was estimated to be almost a billion. Not a billion, sorry. Almost a million. That'd be massive. But it's estimated to be almost a million people. 20,000 people a day is a hell of a lot of people. You know, that's a fifth of our UK national COVID deaths. And I want to say every single death has been tragic. You know, and I'm not diminishing any of that, but I'm trying to put in perspective how bad this was as well. We can't entirely trust what Procopius says, because he wrote another book called The Secret History. His main book was just called The History of the Wars. But he wrote another book called The Secret History, where he talked about how the imperial court was full of prostitutes, and Justinian's wife was incredibly promiscuous, and Justinian was a power-mad murderer which doesn't necessarily match up with any other historical records. So we have to take what he says with a pinch of salt, but the general kind of sentiment of 20,000 a day is that it was seen as being massive, a world-changing, cataclysmic event that struck Byzantine society. And I think it's important we think about that, even if we can't entirely trust what he says. 
Now, this wasn't the only terrible event to happen in 536, however, as going back to Procopius and potentially being a bit melodramatic in his retelling of this too, he says that the sun went dark for globally for 18 months, which made the Mediterranean kind of feel like an almost twilight all the time. He doesn't exactly say what he means. He doesn't say the sun vanished. He doesn't say there was no light. He just kind of, it was dark and we couldn't see the sun all the time. And it's hard for us to find kind of proper scientific modern explanations for this because we can't necessarily trust what he's saying. So how can we explain something if we don't even know what he's saying is true? But we have tried and we have looked at methods, not me personally, obviously, but scientists and scholars and historians have looked at explanations and looked at reasoning to see what could have happened. Whatever this, you know, perpetual blackness and darkness was, it was bad. There's records that we've got from Ireland and we've got from China. And both of these show that there's massive amounts of climate change at this time, probably from this darkness. So in China, it says that in the summer, in the height of summer, there was snow falling on rice paddies. And in Ireland, they don't directly say that there was a famine or there was weather issues, but it says there was a lot of difficulties in making bread. And so from that, we can presume, or deduce if you like, there was a shortage of wheat and grain, which would have been probably from climate change issues like these. But looking at a scientific method of analysis of this, there have been ice cores drilled, which is where you take a massive drill and you delve deep down into an iceberg and you take out a section of the ice and it should correspond roughly to a few centuries or so because obviously the ice all accumulates over the time and it's, it takes from water that's in the air. And now it's a way of looking at the air quality of the time and seeing what an air quality was like. Now, just uh, around this time, so the 6th and 7th century, so roughly between 500 and 600, there's been ice cores and it shows that the air was full of volcanic ash and just dirt and stuff you don't want in the air, you don't want to be breathing it. And we can think that this is probably what was responsible for the darkness, some volcanic eruption. And if anything, that makes the air even worse, doesn't it? Because there's volcanic eruptions going on and, you know, no one likes them, they're horrible. So altogether, you've got a perfect storm in 536 of... This plague that's killing 20,000 people a day in one city, allegedly. You've got this darkness for 18 months, which is only going to make people's mood worse. You know, no one likes January and February when it's only light for a few hours a day. Can you imagine how horrible that'd be if it was dark all the time? It'd be terrible. And then you've got the famine to go with it. And altogether, that's a recipe for a nasty, nasty year. Now, to jump ahead just 600 years, we're going to look at the year 1349. And 1349 saw the spread of the Black Death, which we definitely know is Yersinia pestis, across England, Wales, Scotland, and the entirety of Ireland, and indeed most of Europe at this time. Now, England at the time had been fighting the early part of the Hundred Years' War with France, and at this point, the England was weakened, you know. A lot of the men were overseas fighting away, and it was just a bit of, a bit of national unrest, and there was problems going on, and this was capitalised on by the pesky, pesky Scottish. And what the Scottish did, they took advantage of the situation in England. And I'm sure if the situation had been reversed, the English would have been the first to do this. They took advantage of the situation and they raided Northern England and they reached as far south as a place called Durham. And for those of you who aren't familiar with geography, that's a pretty big trek, you know. That's a solid hundred or so miles trek from Edinburgh to Durham. So they, they penetrated deep into England, really. And now the contemporary descriptions of the time are a little bit like Procopius's are of the plague they're dramatic they're talking about the end times it's the wrath of god it's the apocalypse you know the society is going to crumble and collapse so it must have been a horrible time to have lived through because there's people dying at massive rates today and there was nothing they could do to stop it at all and speaking of the death toll for the black death now there are some massively contrasting opinions on how many people were killed by it so the upper estimate 
the upper realistic estimate, should I say, would be 60% of the population, which would be around about 3.75 million in England. And the lowest acceptable or accepted, if you like, estimate is 20% of the population, which would have been 1.2 million people. Now, to put this in perspective, to compare it to our own society, if in modern Britain, if our death rates from coronavirus, you know, and we can say Britain because death rates were generally similar across England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland. If we can say modern Britain, if we had the same death rates as people did of the Black Death, the lowest estimate, so 20% of our population, the lowest estimate would be 12 million dead. And like I said, COVID's tragic and every, you know, every single person who lost someone or who's lost their life from coronavirus, it's tragic and it shouldn't have happened at all. And this was easily, you know, just as tragic too. These people lost their loved ones, they lost their family, they lost their jobs, they lost their land. These people suffered too. And there were long lasting, you know, economic, societal impacts from this in the same way that the coronavirus has had. The wars with the French, so at this time it wasn't the Hundred Years' War yet, the wars with the French were paused until 1351. Because of the massive death toll of the plague, there was a huge shortage of labour and manpower. Now, the clergy, so the priests of England, England was obviously a lot more religious at the time, the priests performed a lot more roles than they did now. The clergy, because they were kind of like a mix between the frontline healthcare staff, the modern priesthood and members of the government, it's estimated that 50% of the British clergy lost their lives during the plague, which is similar to kind of if half our government or NHS work had been wiped out in one fell swoop. Now, the Black Death also sowed the, the seeds of later change and there were laws introduced on wages after the plague and it set wages at the levels they were before the plague, which were relatively low. And this led to massive unrest and dissent, which led eventually to the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. In the Peasants' Revolt, the Chancellor and the Treasurer were murdered by the mob, the houses of the rich in London were burned down, and there was a lot of chaos and unrest. And it's also been suggested by some people, and I think this is quite an interesting point, it's quite a true point as well, that because of the church, you know, it, was, it wasn't within their power to stop the plague, but because people thought the church would have had the power and they saw the church were unable to do anything, there was a loss of, not belief, but faith in the Catholic Church and respect for them, which may well have sowed the seeds towards the later Reformation, which I think is a really interesting point to think how this sentiment could have been sowed by the plague and then over centuries and centuries, as they saw the power of the church diminish, they saw actually, we can go our own way, you know, we can do what we want, we can do our own thing. And I think that's an interesting thing to take away from the end of the Black Death. Now, the third and final suggestion, which would be my own personal suggestion for the worst year on record, is the year 1918. And 1918 has been talked about a lot recently because 1918 saw the start of the so-called Spanish flu or 1918 influenza pandemic spread the world. Incidentally, it's probably a misnomer to call it the Spanish flu because the first cases came from Kansas, America. So it's, it's you know, that's by the by, isn't it? That's, we'll, we'll just skip past that. And this pandemic, it lasted for two years. And it, they reckon, and we've got reliably good information for this, they reckon it infected 500 million people globally. And comparing this to the infection rates of coronavirus, which is equally as infectious probably, coronavirus has infected a fifth of that. So give or take 105 million, if we can believe all statistics, you know, and there's no take into account false testing and whatnot. There's a massive disparity there, but it's still just as infectious. So in a way, it shows how good a job, if you can say they've done a good job, our governments have done in preventing the spread of the virus. 
Now, the Spanish flu, or 1918 influenza pandemic, should I say, it killed somewhere between 20 and 50 million people. And that's a hell of a lot of people. And I think we can take a middle road figure of 35 million deaths worldwide, which is a terrifyingly large amount. It's almost half, if not over half, of the British population. And coronavirus is, you know, tragically accounted for 2.8 million lives nationwide. Not nationwide, sorry, worldwide. And I think, I don't want to diminish any of that, but we need to consider our position in history and that the people of the past had it bad like we do. They suffered like we do. We suffered like they did. We're not alone in what we've gone through. We're not alone in what's happened because they felt they've gone through it too and they bounced back and I'm damn sure we will as well. And we've also, in 1918, have to consider the ramifications of the end of the First World War in the UK and on a global scale as well. Now, on a national level, the UK and the Allied forces had won the war and we defeated the Germans, but we suffered a hell of a lot to gain our victory. And I think it's easy to say the war touched almost every single person in the British Isles in some way. Now, an easy way or interesting way to demonstrate this would be looking at the parishes and the church parish system during this First World War. England, in terms, sorry, the UK, in terms of organisation, was organised into 12,500 church parishes. These are all like your general like local communities, so every village would be its own parish and so on and so forth. Now, almost all of these, if not all of these that were touched by the war, have their own war memorial or cenotaph to commemorate those who died in the war. There are, in the entire of England and Wales, there are 53 parishes which are known as thankful villages because these are parishes that did not lose a single man in the conflict, or woman even. And there is none in Scotland or the entirety of Ireland. So it's only 53 parishes across the entire country did not lose a single person in direct military action. They may have lost a person, you know, a serviceman who took their own life suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder or they may have lost children in bombing raids perhaps because it was the first time really that people on the home front so people in Britain were directly threatened at the outbreak of the war indeed the German navy actually attacked the British mainland so there was the two seaside towns of Hartlepool and Scarborough and I believe Whitby as well were actually bombed and shelled by the German navy killing civilians in the process and now there were also rationing admittedly on a smaller scale than in the second world war rationing was introduced as a way to tighten you know the food constraints because britain is an island nation and was supplied by the sea and there was a german u-boat menace again not as bad as in the second world war but it's still important to consider that the war was impacting the people of britain for the first time there was also something introduced in 1914 called the defense of the realm act and this introduced a colossal and strange to be frank array of restrictions on private lives so this included relatively not if you like mainstream but understandable restrictions like censorship of the press on telling about the war there was a ban of discussing military matters in public there was also compulsory watering down of alcohol the pubs being only allowed to open about six hours a day and the forbidding of flying of kites and bonfires among other things and i'd encourage anyone who's interested in it to look it up and see how strange and surreal it was and I couldn't imagine our government doing anything like that today, you know. Obviously, they've introduced a lockdown, but I couldn't imagine saying, you know, anyone who says anything bad about the NHS will arrest you. And all in all, 1918 was defined by it being fought the end, people thought, of four years of restrictions and the end of the war. And the loved ones were coming home 
but they still couldn't escape from death. They still couldn't escape from tragedy because the war had touched most people. And then the influenza pandemic went on to do the similar thing as well. On a slightly more positive note, there is one thing, one general theme that unites all of these years. And that theme is that the societies bounced back and they recovered and they prospered. The Byzantine Empire, which had been dramatically struck by the plague, if you remember Procopius saying about 20,000 deaths a day in Constantinople alone, the Byzantine Empire did recover gradually and it remained in existence and remained some form of power until 1453 when Constantinople was conquered by the Turks. So the Byzantines survived for almost a thousand more years. In 1349 and onwards, England bounced back from the Black Death as well. Like I said, the French wars were shortly resumed because we always like a chance to bash the French. And the nation's global status and internal prosperity increased with the end of serfdom. In the 1920s as well, the country saw huge internal economic growth and some important social reforms that I'd be very remiss to not mention. Now, in 1928, women gained equal voting rights and equal franchise with men, which was arguably as a result of the First World War. And to look on a global political scale, regardless of good or bad or right or wrong, the British Empire was its territorial peak in the 1920s. So Britain and the British people saw themselves as survivors, as victors, as fighters, and that they were allowed to have a good time now they got through the hard times of the war. It's a bit like now where people are complaining about the pubs being shut, but they were great. You know, the pubs could open more hours again. The booze weren't being watered down. They were cracking over a great time. But the point of this podcast and this topic itself was to raise awareness generally of some of the horrible, horrible years that humanity and our society has survived through in the past. I doubt any single person has had an easy time through 2020, but the people of the past were able to bounce back from their hard times, and I've got no doubts whatsoever that we can do that as well. And I think it's important to think of, not only will we bounce back and we'll survive and we'll carry on, but I think we'll really prosper and thrive once the population's all vaccinated, when we're all vaccinated and safe, and the economy can be kick-started for a hopeful population to get out there, seize the day, and enjoy themselves. So... Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this and found it interesting. I hope you take care of yourselves and you have a good one.